Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, where we talk all things fishing, conservation, and the outdoors. Today on the show, I'm joined by Bill Summer, a former senior environmental scientist with California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Alrighty, folks, welcome to episode number 21 of the Fish Untamed podcast. Today I got a chance to have a really interesting conversation with Bill Summer, who until recently was an environmental scientist with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And as you'll hear in the conversation, Bill is recently retired, but he spent most of his career um, working on the conservation of the Paiute cutthroat trout, which is a um, very localized small population of cutthroats in California that until recently was on the brink of extinction. And although the project isn't fully wrapped up yet, um, as you'll hear, Bill says that he has a pretty um, positive outlook on how things are going and uh, things are looking up for the fish. There's no uh, angling season on the Paiute cutthroat yet, but, you know, in an ideal world, that will be something that comes not too far down the road uh, as long as things keep progressing as they are right now. So we go through, you know, a history of the Paiute, what, what caused the population decline in the first place, and then Bill's work trying to uh, bring the population back to kind of its former glory. Uh, we do go down quite a few rabbit holes along the way too, which uh, it was pretty hard just because he kept bringing up things that I couldn't resist following up on. So um, you'll have to excuse my derailing of the conversation throughout, but um, I'm guessing quite a few of you will find these topics pretty interesting as well. Uh, one last thing, I do want to throw out the fact that uh, I record most of these podcasts pretty uh, far in advance. I don't want to fall behind or be rushing to get a, a conversation scheduled or anything like that. So I tend to record a couple months out. And because of that, I realized it's a little weird. Um, right now we're in the thick of the coronavirus pandemic. 
And listening back to these episodes that I'm editing, it's it's almost eerie how much different things are today than they were back in January when we recorded this episode. Um, that kind of goes for the next couple episodes as well. Um, obviously, we don't really know how long this is going to go on. So for all I know, in two or three months when some of the episodes that I'm recording now are coming out, maybe we'll be referencing it and it'll be a thing in the past or, you know, maybe it will still be going full force the way it is now. But I just kind of wanted to toss that out. You know, if people are listening to podcasts and uh, things don't seem to be as timely as you'd expect, um, it might just be because people are recording ahead. And, and that's the case for uh, a lot of mine. So you'll probably be hearing a lot of coronavirus references in a couple months when the episodes I'm recording now are coming out. But back when we recorded this, um, coronavirus had just been mentioned briefly in the New York Times, and that was all we knew of it. So that's probably why it, it seems a little different than some of the other shows you might be listening to and and hearing references to it. So just wanted to throw that out. But um, apart from that, we can continue on with the conversation. So uh, without further ado, here is my chat with Bill Summer. But do you, do you have much of a fishing background or are you more on just the, uh, the biology side? Uh, Yeah, I do. I um, started fishing as a kid actually, but more of a, you know, spinning rod kind of a setup, and um, I started out in uh, going into marine biology, actually, at UC Santa Barbara, and then when I uh, went into grad school, I got introduced to fly fishing, and I, when I was um, younger, I did a lot of backpacking and mountaineering, and uh, was kind of focused on climbing things rather than fishing, but... Um, you know, when I was up in the Pacific Northwest in grad school, I did a lot of salmon and steelhead fishing. And then that translated to fly fishing up in the high Sierra. And, you know, I spent so much time up there for work. Um, I still enjoy going there in my time off, but uh, I probably, over the years, my the amount of fishing I, I did declined. But uh, I, I, that's one of the things I plan to get back into. Yeah, I bet uh, I bet retirement's great for picking up old passions. Yeah, I have half a dozen fly rods. I need to get them out there. Maybe the next logical point, since you said that you kind of got into your position uh, through the interest in the biology side of, of fish, um, maybe talk a little bit about how you got interested in that and, and how that led you to your, your recent position. Well, as I said, I... You know, I, I guess I didn't say that, but I grew up in Southern California, and um, I was interested in biology and the ocean. And originally, my interest was in uh, marine biology, and I went to Santa Barbara, University of California there, and I was really interested in intertidal ecology, but uh, there's no work in intertidal ecology. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I, I well a little bit. I actually worked there for a research assistant job, and then uh, I applied the jobs in, in uh, fisheries and uh, aquatic biology in grad school. And so I ended up going up to uh, Humboldt and working on a master's in fisheries biology. Then I uh, worked at the Fish and Wildlife Service. I was actually. Um, what they call a cooperative research unit grad student. And uh, it's uh, related to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And it's a really good program because they have these uh, 
units on a number of campuses around the country. And this one was just fisheries, but uh, a lot of them are, are fishery and wildlife. And so then you get in there with other grad students and help them on their projects and they use. So you get exposed to a lot of different types of work. And uh, it's a good program. It's been uh, uh, threatened with extinction a few times over the years with budget cuts, but it seems to persist, so that's good. So what kind of work were you doing at that time? When I was in grad school? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what were you studying? I was a research assistant, and I was studying a project on uh, suction dredge mining in the Trinity Alps. And... Uh, you know, it used to be a big issue in California as far as the concern about the impacts of the stream and the environment from the, the mining. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we found that in general the, the impacts were, were fairly localized. M- most of the miners did their dredging on a very seasonal basis in, in a small area with a small dredge. And you know, there'd be some fairly localized impacts, but, you know, over the over the big picture of the stream, it, it really wasn't causing much of an impact. But, you know, there were some a few commercial outfitters out there or, or, or miners that, uh, you know, they, they actually did quite a bit of damage in a short reach of stream. And so they probably, well, you know, they were looking at regulations and how to, how to manage the mining industry and, and, uh, now that was that was back in the early mid 1980s, and and since then they, it's really changed with um, legal challenges, and uh, it it pretty much went away in California. There might be some uh, professional miners operating under under specific permits, but you know, the large the industry largely is isn't there like it used to be. So is that when you transitioned out of out of that work toward what you ended up doing afterward, or was there more of a transitioning period in between where you were doing something else? I worked with the Fish and Wildlife Service after grad school on the Trinity River, and we were doing what was called an in-stream flow study there. And I actually got in the aquatic macroinvertebrates work quite a bit in my thesis, and, and then for the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service. And so we were looking at the impacts of the flow regimes out of the Trinity Reservoir uh, on the, the fish life in the stream. From there, I got a job with a, the state California Fish and Game. And uh, I was working as what they call a district biologist. I had a couple of different jobs on that, one in the, val- in the Sacramento Valley and then in the foothills, or the, actually the Sierra Nevada, too, uh, two different districts. And... Uh, that's the kind of job where you um, don't have a lot of time to do anything in specific, but you get a lot of things thrown at you at once, and because you're kind of the you're you are the department contact for the public, so you get involved in all sorts of things, which can be good. But if you want to focus on a specific project, then uh, that can be frustrating. So uh, in the early '70s, the department started the Wild Trout Project, which the focus of that is to manage fish populations using regulations and protecting habitat rather than using fish stocking. And that just seemed like a more logical approach to me, so, and a more focused program, if you will. So I I, uh, took one of those jobs 
that was created. They, they created uh, regional positions in the early 90s, and so I'd, I'd pretty much been on that ever since, although um, the focus of it has changed over the years. And I started out doing uh, more recreational-based wild trout management and uh, kind of moved in the uh, native fish restoration and uh, restoration of federally threatened species. And, and that's kind of where the um, work evolved on the Paiute cutthroat trout and also Lahontan cutthroat trout. Yeah, so that actually uh, kind of answers what my next question was going to be, which was it's, it sounds like that program um, wasn't just for native fish. It was also for the sport fishery. The wild trout project? Mm-hmm. Uh, most definitely, yeah. yeah it, it, uh, and then it actually morphed. It, was, it started out as the wild trout project, and then it became the heritage and wild trout project. As the state recognized the value of the native uh, trout species, and so the heritage trout part of the program emphasized native fish such as uh, golden trout and steelhead and uh, you know red bands and other other native forms. No, you so mentioned the. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I was gonna say you mentioned the Paiute and the Lahontan. Was that just the two that you were focused on? Even there were more fish that uh, the state was focusing on as a whole. Right. Okay. Right. As I was saying, you know, we have the Paiute and Lahontan, and there's also uh, you know, a couple of golden trouts and rainbow trout and, uh, you know, the steelhead too, Kern River rainbow trout. So are the Paiutes just in your area? Is that is that what caused you to get connected to that program specifically? Yeah. Okay. I went out uh, when I was a district biologist. I helped some of the other biologists working on the project. And uh, so I, I actually, the first time I went up there was 1988, but when I got an end of the wild trout project, I became more involved in the restoration and kind of I took over the lead on the project in 1993. Do you want to quickly talk a little bit about the Paiute cutthroat, just as a little bit of a background um, before we keep talking about kind of their struggle and the restoration effort that you were working on, just as a as a background of the fish itself? Yeah, it was thought that the uh, Paiute trout was actually a form of Lahontan trout and that they were isolated from the Lahontan trout about 8,000 years ago. And this is Bob Benke had based this on meristic characters of the fish. And, you know, the isolation could happen in a number of ways. It could could have been a landslide or, or um, you know, the stream eroding down and, and uh, exposing a, a bedrock uh, falls that, kept fish from swimming upstream. It's curious, it was the only thing in the upper basin there in Silver King was the Paiute trout. There weren't any other fish there. So, um, but more recent studies suggest that they have been isolated for much longer periods of time. And it, and it could be that they were um, derived from another form of, uh, an earlier form of Lahontan trout. Um, you know, the Lahontan basin was basically had a number of lakes in it that expanded and contracted over over millennia, and you know the fish populations adapted to that and colonized and withdrew from various basins, and and so it could have been, you know, an earlier form of Lahontan that you know the Paiute separated from, and like I said, they they used to be thought of as just a um, color variant of Lahontan, but you know genetic data, the genetic tools have increased in depth and 
specificity have found more unique markers in the Paiute. And one thing about this trout is that um, as an adult fish, it has no body spots. It has spots on, on the fins, but not on the body itself. And they retain kind of the, the big blotchy marks, uh, the par marks on the sides of the fish in mm-hmm. adulthood. And they have a uh, kind of a reddish hue or a purplish hue in color. And it's really hard to get a, a good picture of that coloration because it's when you have the fish in hand, you see it. But uh, to me, it's really reminiscent of like the golden trout because it's really a vivid color that you see in kind of the higher elevation trout. And I, I think it's it helps in um, making their uh, presence less visible from above with a bright coloration and clearer streams. Do they get to the large size? The Lahontans are the ones that get very large. Is that correct? They do. They have in Pyramid Lake and Tahoe, yeah. Um, but I assume the Paiutes don't get that large. I don't know if it's from their habitat. or like, do they Would they have the capability to get that large if they're kind of just a... Um, like a deviation from the Lahontans? Yeah, that's a good question. In Silver King, they probably get up to about, we've seen 14-inch fish. Okay. Which is a pretty good-sized trout in a 8,000-foot elevation stream. Um, they have tried to put them in lakes a few times, and uh, they those plants generally failed. So that's kind of an unknown question. You know, if you were to put them in something like a big reservoir, how, how big could they get? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it could be that they've lost that through time, but mm-hmm. it's just unknown. And whereabouts are, are we talking here? I, I did look up where the location was on a map, but just describe for people um, like roughly the area of California we're talking about. The Paiute trout occupies Silver King Creek, and it's a headwater tributary of the Carson River. Uh, uh, the East Carson River, and the Carson River starts in the High Sierra uh, south of Lake Tahoe, and it it flows into Nevada and ends up in the Carson Sink. So the lower part of the Carson and both forks were known to be occupied by Lahontan cutthroat trout historically. And we still have populations of Lahontan trout in some of the headwater tributaries. But uh, they've been largely displaced by non-native fish, too, or non-native trout. Okay. So you get you get into this field kind of focusing on the, the native fish of California. And is, is that just where you've stayed then, since then? Um, just finding a love for the Paiutes? Well, yeah, that's just one of many things I worked on. But it was a, a central focus, definitely. Uh, like I said, you know, I worked on Lahontan and cutthroat trout quite a bit as well, but with that, it was harder to make uh, harder to make progress. And then we got sidelined with things like the introduction of northern pike and and lakes in northern California, and uh, that that was several years and eradication efforts there to get rid of the pike. And uh, I also worked on habitat restoration, and I worked closely with engineers and other biologists on developing stream habitat restoration projects like you know bank projects or uh, acquiring um, land and water for fish all kinds of projects really but but nevertheless the Paiute was a central focus 
so do you want to talk about um what do you think makes sense to kind of dive into next do you think just kind of the history of 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 what they were what threats they were facing um before kind of getting into the actual recovery effort that was made recently sure uh the early, some of the early settlers in northeastern California, you know, hiked up in the Silver King, and and uh, you know these were cattlemen and sheepmen, and and uh, also the uh, or French Canadian loggers who went up there in the 1860s to uh, collect wood for uh, the Comstock mines in Nevada and uh, Virginia City. So they um, they logged the wood you know, in those upper basins, and uh, they'd build dams, and then they'd blow them up with dynamite and deliver the, the wood downstream that way. It's kind of hard on the streams. In some places, off trail in the woods there, you can still find huge stacks of wood that they stacked up to deliver down and never sent down the, the creek. And it's thought that uh, some of these, these folks moved the, the fish from Silver King up into Crowell and Coyote Creek, uh, probably in the around the 1860s or so. And uh, over in Silver King, uh, the uh, sheep herders were thought to have moved them up in the early 1900s. There were no fish above Llewellyn Falls in Upper Fish Valley, but there were Paiute trout below that. So they moved them up there. Um, it just seemed to be the thing to do to them, you know, to put some fish up there. Maybe it was so they could have a source of food when they were moving the, the sheep around through the pastures. Do you happen to know how they moved fish back then? Yeah, they just caught them angling and then put them in a bucket. Okay. <laughs> I, wasn't sure, yeah. I wasn't sure what kind of methods they had back then. I mean, it's not that far off from loading them on a mule, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not a long distance. They could just put them in a bucket and hike them up around the falls and pour them in the stream. And, you know, a few times at that was all it took, apparently. All right. I was just, yeah, just curious. <laughs> yeah, we um, actually, when we do fish um, movement, there, there's a num- number of ways it can be done. Uh, some of it's pretty high tech and some of it's still pretty low tech. And we use these uh, fish cans, I call them. They're, uh, they're actually designed for this. They're like the old metal milk cans, except instead of being round, they're more oval shaped. So they had uh, straps that they'd, they'd fit them onto a mule or you can put them in a pack bag and with water, cold water, you add a little ice and the fish slosh around in there and it keeps it well oxygenated and cool. And then they put um, a canvas over the outside and or burlap and you wet that down and the evaporative cooling also cools the, the can. So it's actually a pretty efficient way to transport fish. And is there is there much loss in that? If it's done right, there can be no loss. We, uh, we did a project in 2017. Uh, we moved fish up from Cottonwood Creek to stock back in the upper fish valley. And uh, so we had uh, the crews electrofish and collect the Paiute trout that were stocked there in 1947. And we collected them, held them in the stream overnight, and then at first light the next morning they loaded them up on the pack animals. And they rode out three miles or so out to the roadhead and then they they poured them into a a tank on a fish truck and then they drove them from um, out of the white mountains which is down by bishop california all the way up to uh, the pack station for the little antelope pack station going in the silver king 
and then we reloaded them in the, the same uh, fish cans and put them on mules and took them in the upper fish valley which was like an eight mile ride in and uh we we didn't lose a fish that's really impressive i it mean was, there was a lot of moving parts on that yeah it was it went really quite well but there was a lot of planning involved too and a lot of people and you know it's like everybody had a role you know and and kind of got in there and got it and it was a long day but it, it worked yeah I, I um for my senior thesis i i ended up having to move a bunch of fish just because i was transporting them to put in fish tanks and um you know i most of them survived but there were obviously a couple casualties and it's it's surprising to me that um i mean i lost those in a drive between the, between the hatchery and um the tanks i was taking them to and it's it's really impressive to throw a bunch of fish basically in a backpack and hike them in um, it and not lose any. That's just, that just seems inconceivable. <laughs> yeah, we moved, uh, we, we did a uh, fish rescue earlier. Um, we thought we were going to be doing a treatment back in 2004, I believe. And we moved 500 uh, rainbows out of Long and Lower Fish Valley and stocked them in the East Carson. I think we lost five out of those. So... And they were put in ice chests with oxygen. What's funny, too, is I, and I don't know if there's any basis to this, but I picture rainbow trout being a little bit hardier than cutthroats. Maybe that's just because rainbows are everywhere and they seem to thrive everywhere. So I've just gotten the impression that they do well, you know, in, in whatever circumstance they're put in. But um, I, would have, I would have expected cutthroats to not do as well as rainbows in some sort of stressful situation like that. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true. That's an interesting perspective. I think they, um, you know, you're right. The uh, rainbows will outcompete the cutthroat and, you know, interbreed with them and hybridize, and then we'll lose the cutthroat that way as well. But uh, in other cases, uh, I think the cutthroat can handle warmer water temperature and harsher water quality situations. Like in uh, Pyramid Lake, for example, uh, a rainbow can't persist there. Oh, really? Because the you know the water quality. <laughs> yeah, I guess I've just I maybe I'm just using my localized anecdotal evidence of um, it seems like all of the kind of degraded waterways we have around here they all hold rainbows and all of the pristine alpine lakes that no one ever sees they all hold cutthroats so I just I think I have this you know impression in my mind that the crystal clear mountain streams and lakes have cutthroats and the you know polluted South Platte running through Denver has rainbows <laughs> yeah well it's probably more in that case that the rainbows outcompeted them or, or you know they were displaced through the process of hybridization fair enough um i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves uh sure, i know yeah. i know we uh kind of jumped ahead a bit um which is fine but uh do you want to go back and keep talking about kind of like the the progression of you know, the decline of the Paiute cutthroat back in the day? That's a good point. Thanks for getting us back on track. <laughs> so the, um, the the fish was first described in 1934 by um, Snyder, a, a biologist from the Smithsonian, no, the, uh, um, I can't think of the name of the institution, but anyway, the, he came out and uh, he found the fish were pure above Llewellyn Falls, but um, they were already becoming hybridized below the falls. And this was, this had come about from rainbows being stocked in, in the lower part of the stream and, and also uh, a hot cutthroat. And so 
you know, these earlier um, stockings of the fish above their historic range uh, led to their salvation because by the time they were known to the scientific community, they were already uh, displaced out of their historic range. Oh, so the the place that was still holding the the pure strain was was one of those areas that they had been transported to by the sheep herders, right? And the loggers. So that was just an inadvertent lucky chance, basically. For the fish, yes. Now I was reading an article from the Department of Fish and Wildlife that mentioned the word poachers, and I thought that was an interesting word because I don't often hear the word poachers associated with fish not that you can't poach a fish um, but it's not a word I usually see and so it stuck out to me Um, do you know what they're referring to because it it doesn't seem in the story you've told so far that anyone had done anything maliciously um, against the Paiute it was more an unfortunate you know set of circumstances where they were hybridizing with um other species or being outcompeted by them, but not directly killed off by poachers? Well, actually, the Paiute trout are, are fairly vulnerable to angling. Okay. And it could be that they're just so uh, remote and isolated that they're just um, unaccustomed to it. Mm-hmm. So um, some of the early visitors um, mentioned catching quite a few fish. And okay. And there was a time when we had a hybrid fish in Upper Fish Valley. We'll get to that here in a bit. But um, they opened it up the fishing, and they found that you know the fish were highly, were really vulnerable to angling. And uh, there were some cases of poaching that happened up there. Across the ridge is the Mountain Warfare Training Center, where the the Marines trained for. high elevation war, basically. And they'd come over in the Silver King on occasion and and do survival training, and and sometimes they would poach the fish. And that's really a matter more of um, communication with the base and making sure they know know, where they are when they're doing these exercises so that they aren't uh, (laughs) angling for an endangered species, if you will. Now, that makes more sense. I just wanted to to ask you about that because I feel like more often than not when I hear about a, a threatened fish species, it's usually from, you know, like like you mentioned, kind of just uh, over time either being outcompeted or from grazing or just kind of a, a slow burn over time versus a direct, you know, poaching impact. So I just wanted to ask you about that if you knew anything about it. So that clears that up. <laughs> no, you're, you're right, though. The biggest... Um... The biggest impact on the fish, obviously, was the introduction of non-native fish, non-native trout, primarily rainbow. And also, the area had been heavily grazed for uh, over 100 years between sheep and cattle grazing. Mm-hmm. And that really impacted the stream and the habitat in um, you know, a variety of ways, through sedimentation and, and destabilization, destabilization of the stream banks. And this caused a wider, shallower stream channel and, and shallower pools. And so the big thing there was the um, degradation of the overwintering habitat for the fish. You need deep pools where the fish can, can get away from ice and, and so forth in the stream. So is this something they're still, they were still struggling with even above the falls? The 
grazing erosion um, or or is that kind of a sanctuary once they got up above those falls and they were protected from from all these impacts uh, they were grazing there until I believe 1994 okay so it's still not a, a fully you know intact healthy population it was still pretty threatened above the falls well it's done a lot of recovery since then uh, actually the stream looks looks much better um, you know, that's still a couple of decades, and it will take more time, especially in the lower Fish Valley. I think it was maybe uh, a little more impacted by the grazing. But, um, you know, another another deal is climate change mm-hmm. and the effects that has. Um, you know, maybe we can kind of save that a little bit and come back to it. Sure. Um, so after they had identified the fish, the department moved pretty quickly to close with the fishing. I think that was closed, check my notes here, 1935 or so to angling. And uh, 1934, yeah. The Snyder described it in 33 and then found the hybrids below the falls in 34 and they closed it to fishing. So then they started, you know, they tried moving some fish around in various places to try to expand, you know, their populations. And they tried, um, you know, putting them in, in various other places, like I mentioned, the White Mountains and the Central Sierra. And uh, mo- most of all those transplants failed for one reason or another, although the one in the White Mountains in the Cottonwood Creek is probably one of the more successful ones. And you know, it was neat because we were able to go up there a couple years ago and draw from that population to bring back some genetics in- into Silver King and help restore that. So then in 1949, there was an unauthorized plant of rainbow in, in these headwater tributaries in Silver King. And that just unraveled the, the populations that were above the falls at that point uh, because they got the rainbows in there and they hybridized and displaced the pure Paiute. So at one point, we only had pure Paiute and two headwater tributaries in the Silver King Basin. And you know, there was only a few hundred adults there. And so all, all the populations in Silver King were eventually uh, restored from those two. And they were restored by a number of methods. They, um, they did chemical treatments primarily, but they also tried electrofishing and, and removing the, the hybrids. But that did work in a couple of the tributaries, but primarily, uh, or for the most part, it didn't work because uh, you can't always tell a, a hybrid fish just by eye. Um, so, you know, now, of course, we use genetic markers to, to look for hybridization. But in, in some cases, um, it is readily apparent. You know, in one case, you'll have a Paiute trout with no spots on the body, and the other, you'll have hundreds of them, and that's clearly a hybrid fish. And so they kept the, where, where were the two populations? You said North Cottonwood, and where was the other one? Well, there were two in the Silver King Basin. That was Four Mile and Fly Valley Creek. Oh, okay. And so then all the populations in, in the Silver King watershed were restored from those two, or a combination okay. of those two. And that's why, again, we went back to Cottonwood and, and drew from that one for Upper Fish Valley because we just wanted to bring back some uh, other genetics. When they made that plant uh, back in 47, they collected fish from all they thought were the most pure populations in Silver King. But it, it's really kind of interesting. There's a long history to all of this and all of the um, biology and restoration work that's gone on. And you know, like I said, they did a number of chemical treatments that failed 
for a variety of reasons, and then eventually um, they figured out what that was and were able to correct it and then uh, successfully treat it. So now all the, the pop- Do you know what those reasons were? Yeah, one of them was like I said earlier about when they thought they had pure fish, but they actually had hybrid fish. Okay. So like they treat a section and then allow it to recolonize, and the fish they thought were pure were not, um, or or they didn't get a complete kill on the treatment. Okay. Of the of the rainbow, of the rainbow hybrids. So the um, chemical treatment is an evolving science. You know we have better better ways to uh, monitor the use of the chemicals than we did in those days. Although it's still and we have to take water samples and take them back to a lab and analyze them. You know, that, that's probably a whole other phone call to talk about all that. But yeah, um, do you have one quick question on on the use of chemicals? When they use those, is it selectively picking out fish, or is it kind of like wiping the entire uh, habitat within the water like clean? And you know, you're you're wiping out insects and everything like that as well. Yeah, that's a good question. And those are uh, the, those that are opposed to the use of uh, pesticides or chemicals that, for restoration. That that's one of their their major concerns is what are are called non-target organisms. So basically, the road known will affect uh, animals that are gill breathing and they take up, um, you know, their oxygen through the water, and and so that they they take up the uh, road known that way as well. And then it comes down to you know, different organisms having different tolerances uh, to the to the rodent, which can vary widely. Say in aquatic insects, some are, are very susceptible to it, and some aren't at all. You know, it'll it'll get earthworms, and uh, we're concerned with amphibians too. So somewhere between like targeted and wiping clean the entire stream. Like there, there's some things that make it through, but it's definitely not uh, very, very targeted. Oh, it definitely kills aquatic insects. Okay. But, you know, you got to keep in mind, too, that um, they have a variety of methods to recolonize. And the bugs will drift down from upstream. And uh, also the adult uh, forms of the aquatic insects will fly upstream from downstream to, to do their uh, egg depositions. Mm-hmm. So they have a lot of, they're um, really adapted to disturbance and uh, they have wide dispersal and, and um, recolonization powers. Uh, another thing is, is they're in what, what's called a hyperic layer of the stream, which is um, you know, the rocky layer below the surface or the bottom of the stream. And you know, the aquatic larva will, will penetrate several feet down in, into that layer where the rotenone doesn't uh, penetrate. So it, it won't it won't kill. It's not like it just wipes out all of the bugs in the stream. So um, you know, there's a variety of these mechanisms that they have um, to recover, and and the literature largely shows that the uh, invertebrates recover fairly quickly. Now, if there are um, a unique species that are adapted just to a certain habitat, then that that would take some extra precautions. Um, and I was going to mention with the amphibians, we timed the treatments later in the season when uh, they um, have metamorphosed into adults. So then they're not susceptible to the road now. 
Uh, some of the frogs have more than one year in, in the stream in their life stage, so uh, we, we did surveys to see if there are any of the, that species, primarily in this case the Sierra yellow-legged frog, and we didn't find any in the treatment area, so if we had it, we would have moved them out of the treatment area upstream. So there are precautions being taken, even if you can't you can't fix or you can't stop, you know, every non-target species from being hit. There, are, there. Are, it's not just dump it in and and hope for the best. Like there are there are quite a few precautions being taken to minimize, you know, unwanted. Exactly. Impact. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Awesome. Well, I keep I keep uh, <laughs> running us off track here, um, but yeah, you just keep uh, you keep saying things that are really interesting that I want to follow up on. But um, back to the back to the um, mildly successful, mildly unsuccessful Paiute re- recovery. Well, so the final phase of the let's just say the uh, first part of the restoration, which was restoring uh, the Paiute back in the Upper Fish Valley from this 1949 rainbow transplant. We, we did them um, from 1991 through 93, a series of three chemical treatments there, each or two each year for the three years. And when we got that done, we started restocking, and it was like the time to go, well, what is their next move to recover this fish? At the time, actually, in the recovery plan, it identified this Cottonwood Creek uh, out of basin population in the White Mountains as expanding that for recovery. And to me, that just didn't make much sense because it's a small stream at a high elevation and and has some water quality that just some uh, I guess some heavy minerals in there that's just not ideal for um, the Paiute trout. And so. Another biologist and I went and um, explored the Silver King Canyon and found a series of waterfalls through there. Um, we believe that was had led to the isolation of the fish. What was the presumed historic range, which was from the Silver King Canyon up to Llewellyn Falls. Then we started working on that project even as we were um, finishing restocking the upper fish valley treatment from 93. And we started doing uh, electrofishing surveys and surveys on all the streams to see the distribution of the non-native fish and the Paiute trout historic range to see um, you know, how we would be able to remove them and restore the, the Paiute trout there. So that, that took several years of surveys, and then um, we were doing aquatic invertebrate monitoring. Some of that was from the older treatments, and some of it was done... Uh, to evaluate grazing impacts. And so we had a pretty good database of aquatic uh, invertebrate work. And um, it'll be interesting because that has uh, gone forward. I think their final year is this summer to collect from the uh, the treatment we did back in uh, 13 through 15. So we'll have decades of aquatic invertebrate data to look at. And what are they? What will they use that data for? Or is it is it just there as a resource when needed, if and when needed? Well, yeah, it'll help us evaluate uh, how rapidly you know the aquatic macroinvertebrates uh, recolonize after the treatment. In some really large treatments, it has taken years for them to recover, but eventually they did. You know, there's some large treatments done in, in Utah. Uh, God, I, don't, I don't remember the mileages, but I think they're like. 
20 or 30 mile treatments and you know some especially some there's some um, life forms that are aquatic insects that have aquatic phases of a year or longer and so it might take them a little longer to um, recolonize these reaches, but eventually they did. Uh, so you know these kinds of things, and and like I said earlier, just to evaluate the um, the recovery of all all the different taxa in the system. And so you said that there there were concerns about the mineral content of was it North Cottonwood that 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 was the issue. Well, I, I don't know that it really say concerns, but it's just not as as good of a situation as as Silver King in terms of the habitat. Mm-hmm. For example, they they found when they handled a fish in Cottonwood, they they suffered from fungal infections, and we never saw that in Silver King. Okay, but they were did they ended up using this population to restock Silver King? Uh, well, we did, and and uh, we brought again we brought some over in uh, seventeen. 2017 from Cottonwood to um, restore the uh, help restore the genetics there, and so again, and after '93, we we um, rebuilt the Upper Fish Valley population. So by around year 2000, all of the headwater populations had been restored and tested for well over a decade and found all to be pure. So. That's when we decided to try to start moving forward with restoring the fish back to the historic range. We actually were in a position to start the project in, in 2003, and there was uh, a relatively unorganized group that was in opposition to it. But um, you know, they they kind of started building their um, their support. And they're able to stop us there for um, 2003, 2004, and five. And and in 2005, they actually uh, had a uh, restraining order issued in federal court against the, the uh, Forest Service, and uh, they ended up getting a preliminary injunction issued uh, requiring an EIS EIR, EIR be completed for the project. So that kind of sent our agencies back to the drawing board. And uh, we found the funding to go and, and complete these documents. Why was there opposition? Um, well, again, it was people that were opposed to the use of rotenone and stream. Oh, okay. And it wasn't it wasn't necessarily that they were opposed to the pyute reintroduction, but uh, the, the use of the piscicide. Although there were some people that uh, were opposed to restoring the pyute. In the historic range, and why is that? Was uh, it a sport fishing motivation? It was, yeah. It was a nice little rainbow fishery in there, but <laughs> they weren't. The interesting thing was, is they weren't real large. They um, they were very populous, but so if you went down there with your fly rod, you'd have a hard time getting the three to four inch fish out of the way to get a seven or nine inch fish. Yeah, I just never understand. I mean, I I can totally appreciate the desire to have lots of fish to catch, but it just boggles my mind that um, that would be a priority when you can catch a rainbow in pretty much any any city in any state you go to, it seems. Well, true. Uh, That was my thinking, too, and especially a fish as rare as this. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but the, uh, the folks that filed the lawsuits, they were very persistent. And uh, we got the environmental documents done in 2010, and they came back again and again filed lawsuits and had the project blocked until um, 2013. Timeline here I'm looking at. <clears throat> so when that happened, they dissolved the injunction, and we were able to move forward. And we completed the treatments uh, in 2013, 14, and 15. And uh, we had a lot of uh, water quality monitoring going on within the uh, within the treatment area and also downstream, which which was very helpful to help us evaluate you know the toxicity and um, you know there's a number of ways you evaluate a chemical treatment to make sure that it's successful. You put like live cages in the stream with a fish on them, make sure you, you uh, get all those fish or, or kill all of them, and then you know, look at the uh, concentrations of the chemicals in the stream, and then also the uh, observations of the crews seeing you know, dead fish in the stream and making sure they don't see any live fish swimming around. And you know, that's kind of the ugly part of the business, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that's all kind of receding into the past now. And you know, now we're in the uh, restocking mode, which is really kind of more the fun, positive part of the project. And how long do you have to wait between treatment and restocking? Well, we waited three years um, on this project to evaluate the success of it. Oh, uh, so is that less, is that less um, because it takes that long you know, to actually clear out and be viable again and more just to make sure that you've gotten everything out of it? Well, some treatments, some some um, biologists have restocked the fish in the same summer, and I, I think that might be a little too fast because you need to give, it's probably best to give at least a year to allow the uh, aquatic biota to, to um, recover. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, here they there are no fish in the stream, so there's no predators on on the uh, macro inverts other than other macro inverts so their recovery might be enhanced from that aspect at least in terms of the rapidly recolonizing species okay but the actual chemical is is washed out fairly quickly in a matter of hours okay and it's just and at that point it's just waiting for the stream to become um, viable enough as a as a fish habitat before right. putting fish back in and then also making sure that you actually killed everything that you were trying to kill. Exactly. And the other okay. part of, uh, that I didn't mention was um, you know, we only want to treat a, a specific spart- part of the stream. So at a, at a certain point, we set up what we call a neutralization station, and we apply potassium permanganate that breaks down uh, the rhodonone. So below that point, it's not killing fish. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> just throwing a bunch of of uh, toxic chemicals in, and then just letting that flow downstream to wherever that wherever that stream leads. Right. Although it'll break down with uh, oxidation, you know, by the sun and and uptake by the, the stream itself, you know, the biota in the stream, and also through um, uh, dilution as other streams enter the the system. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, it, you want to um, keep it fairly focused where you do the, the treatment is it could, it definitely could kill fish. If you just let it go. Yeah. It could kill fish for miles and 
<laughs> that wouldn't be good. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure that would anger even more people when it comes to the uh, the sport fishery. Right. There's no reason to, to do anything like that. Um, so the reason we waited three years to begin restocking was, uh, again, to evaluate the, the treatment. And we used a relatively new technology on that, the environmental DNA or eDNA. And so we had uh, crews go in and sample every 100 meters through the whole basin, um, collecting water samples that were evaluated to see if there's any presence of rainbow trout in them. And um, then we also had crews electrofishing through the stream. So we use these uh, methods along with, uh, you know, just their observations to see if if any non-native fish were found in the system. And uh, so we... Uh, did not find non-native fish in the system and uh, began uh, the restocking this this last September. Oh, that was just this past September. Uh, when we moved fish into the treatment area, yeah, into the okay. historic range. I, I maybe I was mistaking that for the 2017 move. Yeah, I didn't. Make, I'm sorry, I didn't make that clear. The fish in 17 were stocked above Llewellyn Falls in the Upper Fish Valley. Okay, and this is down where they had very like way early on been taken out of by the herders. This most re- this most recent restocking was was down where they had originally been. Yeah, moved that's from. right. Oh, okay, in the, okay. Back I in misunderstood. Range. Yeah. And so now they're at this point they are both below and above the falls. Is that is that second that's population? Right, yeah. Okay, that's that's still there as well. So they they occupy or they will occupy uh, more water than they did historically. Okay. And then have they opened up a fishery on it since then? Well, not yet. Um, So getting back to the climate change, um, another reason, um, well, we wanted to wait the three years to um, evaluate the treatment, but in that that interim, we had a a fairly severe drought in California, and uh, it impacted uh, the populations of Paiute trout pretty dramatically. In, in the large meadows that they occurred in like Upper Fish Valley and also Four Mile Canyon Creek was hit hard. And basically what happened was is that with, with a drought and no precipitation, there was no snow blanket put over the stream and we ended up suffering severe anchor ice on the stream, which is a process by which the stream literally freezes from the bottom up and it's just solid ice except for some water courses through the ice that um, really don't provide any any habitat or, or resting or for the fish. So um, it's, it's, it was a fairly dramatic impact uh, to the population. That's why we went to the uh, Cottonwood Creek and brought back fish and planted them in Upper Fish Valley to give that population a boost. Okay, that that makes more sense. I was getting confused between the uh, above the falls population and the true historic population below. Yeah, there's several moving parts here, and I kind of have to get through the whole thing for it to make sense. I think. Yeah, it kind of seems like they there have been Paiutes somewhere at every at every moment, but they have they've not always been in the same the same place for very long before the whole population is. Is the whole pure strain population is existing somewhere entirely other than where it had been before. That's right, yeah. And hopefully now they can be restored uh, back to their historic range. But they have been, um, you know, we, as I mentioned, we made that plant this past September, but um, 
Now, they were dribbling down from the headwater populations already, and we had um, actually, when we did the eDNA, we, we detected them in that. And we also saw in our electrofishing, we collected fish here and there, but not in great numbers. They're just beginning to reoccupy the stream. So how are things looking now? Well, I think it's looking um, very bright for the fish, as long as um, you know, they can keep up the restocking. And at some point, um, they'll get the numbers restored back to a presumed historic level. And we had some fish population data on the rainbows in the treatment area. And that gives us some idea at least what kind of biomass or numbers we might expect to have with the Paiute trout. And my guess would be if things go smoothly, that could be five to eight years in the future from now. Is that a relatively short-term um, number, or is that longer than average for something for a project like this? As far as restoring it? Yeah, like is, is this, um, and is that optimistic, or is that, uh, how do I want to phrase this? If in, a, in any similar situation, would that be considered a quick recovery, or is that a more slow recovery? Well, it's hard to, it's really hard to pin down that tightly. But, uh, for example, in the upper Fish Valley, we treated it in, in 93, and the numbers had recovered there in, in 2000 to the historic level. So that was a seven-year interim there. Okay. How, however... Uh, in 97, we had a, an historic 100-year flood happen that just ripped apart the place. So that set the fish back there a year or more. So you, you can have these events that occur that um, can cause setbacks. So you know, that's what I'm saying. It could be five years or, or longer, depending on what kind of... If we have another big drought with anchor ice, that, that could set them back. Again, another two or three years at least. Well, it sounds like a you know overall successful against the odds. Like it just like you said, there's so many moving parts that it's just shocking that it it seems to have worked. I mean, obviously it's it's not complete, like you said, five to eight years. But all things considered, it seems like there are a lot of times when something could have gone majorly wrong and it didn't. Yes, that's true. That's true. A lot of planning, a lot of work, a lot of people involved in it in various capacities and um, disciplines really help keep it on the rails, if you will. Um, so in the future, w once the restocking is done, I'm sure the agencies will start to work on the uh, delisting of the fish, which uh, that'll be very cool when they get it uh, removed from the endangered species listing. Um, it was originally listed as endangered, and then it was downgraded to threatened to allow um, for easier management by the state, if you will. And an endangered listing requires a lot of um, a permitting by the federal entities. And it also allows us to um, authorize angling. So it's very strange. You know, you can, you can have an endangered species here, at least a, a listed threatened that you can fish for. I assume it's just yeah. catch and release at that point? Um, not necessarily, but I, I think with the Paiute, it likely, the Paiute trout would likely be a special type of fishery. You know, probably catch and release would be my guess. 
out of the populations that were used to stock to restock like do those populations still exist and will those you know continue to be managed the same way all the, yeah all the headwater uh populations of pyot trout and silver king have been restored and then there's another four out of basin populations that exist as uh, refuges if you will and um they're in very remote places generally closed to angling I would think that the treatment area at some point could be open to fishing, but you know that's going to have to go through a whole process at some point down the road. And I, I think the way to look at it is, is you know, here we are, um, we've been engaged in this project to restore a really rare native fish, and um, that, that in itself is the end goal. And Providing a fishery is, is kind of an added benefit or plus if they uh, decide to do that at some point. And they, they, can, they can probably do that before it's delisted because the, the act and the, um, some of the laws allow for that. I mean, it could take some time to get the fish delisted once it's determined that you know, we, we have a, a safe, stable population. And I'm sure even determining that would take a while in itself. Right. Well, as much as I would, you know, love to down the road be able to fish for the Paiute, I, I, and I hope most other people um, would feel that it it's more important to have them there, regardless of whether you can fish for them, um, over just trying to create a population specifically for fishing. So, you know, as much as I'd like to. It matters more to me that they exist just for the sake of existing, and I'd hope other people would feel the same way. Exactly, and, and it's a, a beautiful animal. Yeah, I saw some pictures, and they do look. I know you said that the pictures don't really do them justice, but they do look unique to other other cutthroats that do have a lot of the spots. I mean, most of the cutthroats we have out here are pretty heavily spotted, um, and if not over the whole body, at least their their tails are heavily spotted. And yeah. Like you said, there it's just kind of a, a blank blank screen, but just like a kind of an iridescent color. Yes, yes. Well, Bill, I uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I know we've already gone over an hour now. But I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this. I know you're uh, no longer no longer actively working on this, but I'm sure it's something you still think about a lot. And um, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come come chat about them. Yeah, that that's a good point. We need to point out is that I'm retired and and. Uh, you know, some of my views are, may not be the official views of the department at this point. Um, I hope to um, be involved at, at some really background level, at least for a while, to help them keep keep the course going, if you will. Um, but right, I'm not uh, going to be really actively involved in, in a lot of the project anymore. And that's actually a good good point that maybe I should ask about. Are there? Do you happen to know if there are any sort of like volunteer opportunities that people that people could get involved in to support the the Paiute recovery? Well, there have been over the years. It, it's kind of um, it's spotty, if you will, because of the nature of the work. And in other words, um, like some of the work, the chemical treatments is really um, you have to have people trained, and and uh, it's not really a volunteer kind of work. But okay. um, we're past all that now, and and. In the 80s, for example, uh, we did a lot of habitat restoration work in um, various places in the basin up there, and that was done with the help of Trout Unlimited, and uh, they had hundreds of people up there working on, um, you know, building bank 
protection structures and, and other structures in the stream. And so uh, there was a lot of a lot of work done by volunteers. And then uh, fish rescue I mentioned that we did back in '04. That was um, again the TU chapter came out and helped us, and uh, a lot of volunteers were in play on that one. So it just kind of depends on what's going on and what kind of projects uh, might be needed. So, um, but you know the um, relative access of the place makes it difficult. In other words, you, you have to hike in, you know, eight to ten miles to get get into the country there, and that kind of limits who might be able or want to volunteer. And you know, being out in the wilderness, uh, of course, a lot of folks would jump for that. Yeah, that isolation probably keeps them pretty protected just in itself too <laughs> well it does you know and it's it's all in the wilderness area so um it's it's pretty well protected from that aspect yeah we've got a couple populations like that in colorado too obviously not that species but just a couple couple areas when you're when you're in there and you think you know logically you know that someone's been there before you but it's it's easy to convince yourself that you're the first person that's ever been somewhere in some of those you know way back pockets of the wilderness that's part of the uh, idea of wilderness, right? It's just the uh, discovery. Mm-hmm. All right, Bill. Well, I will. I will let you get going f- uh, for the evening. But um, once again, just thanks. Thanks for taking your time to uh, to come chat with me about this. I I really enjoyed learning about them. Yeah. Well, I enjoyed talking with you too. That was uh, it was fun. I look forward to hearing what you put together. All right, and that'll do it. As always, if you liked what you heard, go ahead and go over to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts and subscribe to Fish Untamed there. I'd also love a rating and review if you've got a couple extra seconds, which I hope you do since you just spent an hour here. Um, you can also find me on social media under my name, Katie Burgert, on Go Wild or at Fish Untamed on Instagram. And I'll be back here in two weeks, so I hope to see you all then. Bye, everyone.